thank you all so much. So how do artists and writers share truthful stories about fiction staged in Alaska? American physician and explorer Frederick Cook claimed to have discovered the North Pole in 1908, but who was discovered and what was actually suppressed in this story? What are doctrines of discovery and what role do Alaska artists and writers and arts organizations play in resisting colonialism through the words we create and promote? And how might the work of artists today in exposing these doctrines play into the rising social justice movement, particularly in Alaska? I'm Asia Freeman, your host for Benell's podcast, Inspiration and Adaptation, weekly dialogues exploring how Alaska artists are maneuvering today's challenges, the global pandemic, planetary stress, and the rising call to action against systemic social injustice. Benell is situated within the tribal lands of Michiltana Nunilchik village tribe, land sustained for over 15,000 years by the Ketchumak peoples and their descendants of many nations today. Today, we're joined by Homer writer Nancy Lord and Jennifer Norton, Executive Director of Pier One Theater in Homer. Thank you both so much for joining us and to all of our guests. Let me begin by introducing Nancy. Nancy Lord, longtime Homer resident and a former Alaska Writer Laureate from 2008 to 2010 and the author of 10 books, including Fish Camp, Beluga Days, Early Warning, and PH a novel. She also edited the anthology Made of Salmon. Her writing, both fiction and nonfiction, generally concerns environmental and northern subjects. She's taught for many years in the University of Alaska system, both at the Homer campus and in the MFA program. For 18 years, she served as an advisor and faculty member with the Ketchumac Bay Writers Conference. She currently teaches in the Johns Hopkins University Online Masters in Science Writing Program and regularly reviews Alaska-related books for the Anchorage Daily News. She is relatively new to playwriting with two short plays that have been workshopped, produced, and or published. And she has enjoyed the collaborative nature of working with directors and actors. So she's currently adapting a new short play, The Fred Cook Interview, into a radio play with Jennifer Norton from Pier One and Homer's KBBI Public Radio, which is expected to air in late February. I'm so excited to talk with you about that today, Nancy. And now let me introduce Jennifer Norton, who is Executive Director of Pier One. Jennifer grew up in Homer and has spent much of her life at Pier One Theater. She began as a tiny stagehand and then participated in youth theater camps and acted in youth-focused productions. She has been a stage manager for many productions at Pier One and Dance Theater North, Jazz Line Dancers, and musicals put on at Homer High. At Pier One, she has directed several recent productions. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Chicago, Spamalot, Much Ado About Nothing. She co-directed Jesus Christ Superstar and Picasso at the La Palma Gilles. Since 2011, she has been um, the co-artistic director for the Homer Nutcracker Ballet. And today, she is the ED of Pier One Theater. Welcome, Jennifer. So we're going to talk about this short play that Nancy has written uh, featuring the historic explorer Fred Cook and Frederick Cook and his claims to have been the first to reach the top of Denali and the North Pole. Um, and maybe the actors will join us. Um, we'll see about that. But let's just start with with you, Nancy. And again, welcome. Thanks for your um, 
for your presence here today. Who, who was this guy, Fred Cook? Frederick Cook, actually. I say Fred Cook because that's in your play title. And how did you become interested in him and why did you decide to write about him particularly now? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, I had a uh, writing residency in um, Wales in November of 2019. <laughs> this is not going to seem to connect. Um, but in the house there, there was, there was a um, bookcase of art books. And so um, when I first got there, I was going through the bookcase and looking at all these art books. And there were a couple of other books stuck in there. And one of them was this really old um, book, all kind of, you know, ancient looking and tattered and worn. And I pulled it out and it was, it was Frederick Cook's um, uh, book called My, My Attainment of the Pole. Um, which was his his narrative of um, of being the first one to get to the North Pole, and um, I had always I had always heard of him. Um, he's sort of infamous as having claimed to be the first to reach the North Pole and also the first to have um, reached the top of Denali. Um, he was you know a really well known American explorer. Um, and um, anyway, I pulled it out and uh, and I, I started reading it, and then I. I just thought, you know, that I had to write something and it just kind of came to me. I imagined him sort of coming back in our time and um, uh, being in a dialogue with like an interviewer. And what, what interested me largely was that he, he, his claims for these um, achievements have been questions and pretty much um, uh, discounted. He's, 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 uh, not considered to have been a truthful person. And I was interested in parallels between him and other uh, people that we know um, who also are not, are not truthful. Um, so that's what I wanted to explore well, with the play. And it's, it's quite a mm -hmm. short play. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so I had it, I submitted it to the Valdez Theater Festival that then didn't happen last summer. And um, Jennifer put out a call for um, radio plays and she's done several that, you know, like to hear more about from her um, and it just seemed like uh, it was could be a possibility so I send it along to Jennifer and um, so that's where we are it um, it's in rehearsal and it will be on KBBI um, I think in March I don't think we have a date yet yeah wow okay so super excited to talk more about this play but um, and thank you for that Jen Tell us about Pier One. How is Pier One doing, especially now in pandemic times? And and what is Pier One doing? And why, um, you know, why did it seem like the right time to produce this play for radio? Sure. Well, as you know, uh, theaters across the globe are closed at the moment as we sort of deal with this social distancing need um, and. Uh, so Pier 1 Theater has closed its doors for its summer season, um, but we wanted to still be able to serve our community, specifically our, our locals who really needed some theater uh, to get them through this last year. So uh, it actually opened some channels for us that we wouldn't have ordinarily had the time to pursue, one of which was radio theater, which we had not we had sort of been talking about for several years, but hadn't really had the opportunity to delve into, just didn't really seem to have the time or, um, or 
you know, it didn't necessarily fit into KBBI's agenda at the time, but uh, the new director of KBBI, Josh Crone, is extremely supportive of radio theater. He's a longtime participant at Pier 1 Theater himself um, and was really excited about this idea of radio theater. So almost as soon as he got into his director position, he was like, let's do radio theater. So we started planning things. We started exploring things that were in public domain, uh, or we started with the importance of being earnest this spring. And that was really fun. But we also really are interested in sharing the work of our local people. So we were able to produce Brenda Dolma's play, Rising, which is about grief and climate change. And also a little short play by Jessica Golden called Shakespeare in Quarantine, which she wrote just this fall uh, to sort of encapsulate the experience of, of working on art during quarantine. And so uh, when Nancy's play came my way, I was really excited again to celebrate another local uh, author and to explore these different ways of, of putting things on the radio. Each of those plays had a really different feeling and experience. The Importance of Being Earnest is a big cast. It was, we, it was early in the pandemic. We recorded via Zoom. It was very technically challenging. And rather than doing a fully type sound effect, uh, Scott Bartlett, who's a percussionist, um, as well as the director of Homer Council on the Arts, is uh, uh, put together, he kind of built a soundtrack that sort of followed the emotional track of the play. And Rising had a kind of a similar thing using more found sounds, rain and the drips of water and, and things like that, that Kathleen Gustafson put together. And then uh, um, Shakespeare in Quarantine followed a more traditional like Foley type sound effect uh, radio theater thing with keyboard clacking and doors closing and footsteps and those kind of things. So um, there's just a lot of different things we can do on the radio and um, just really excited to explore some of those ideas. Yeah, that's so terrific. I grew up with um, radio theater. My mom was was doing it at the time and, and I love it so much. I'm so excited. I've really enjoyed the projects that you've put on air thus far. Nancy, um, tell us a little bit about the format of this play. How long is it? What's the structure of it? And why did you choose that that structure? Yeah, it's it's quite a short play. It's um, it runs maybe uh, maybe half an hour, um, and it's the the setup is um, uh, just the two characters, and they're they're they'll be played by uh, Maura Jones and um, uh, Mike Tupper, uh, two of the the Pier One. Uh, theater people, actors, um, and so the 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 setup is that there's um, uh, it's an, it takes place on a TV studio as so it's being, uh, and it's um, the interview is someone like R Rachel Maddow that kind of uh, interviewer, and then uh, uh, Frederick <coughs> Frederick Cook has uh, kind of come back from the. <clears throat> Um, or come into the future <clears throat> to be interviewed by her, and she's she's interested in um, quizzing him about uh, <clears throat> his uh, journey to the pole and and the nature of of truth, um, and to see if there were sort of lessons to learn from him to carry to 
present day. So it's just the two characters um, kind of, you know, talking back and forth. And um, uh, yeah, anyway, it was very, it was very fun. I got to sort of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, burn off a little of my, my angst about um, the political situation at that time. Uh, and again, that was the, late in uh, 2019 when I was writing it. Mm -hmm. And since it's not a very um, long play, and you and, and Jen are both here, I'm wondering if we could read a bit from the play just to give all of us a, a bit more of um, a background into the, all the things that you're taking on. Could we, could we read the first page at least and get sure. the um, Jennifer, which um, which character would you like to be? <laughs> uh, I'm either either one is fine with me. I. <laughs> um, uh, okay, why don't why don't you be the uh, interviewer, and I'll be uh, Fred. Certainly. Uh, but I'll do the, I'll do the setup here a little bit. So, um, um, well, I guess I already did that. So, um, yeah, why don't you do you have it in front of you there? Can you just launch? I do. Right? Yep, I can. Welcome back. In our new segment, Know Your History, we're proud tonight to have in our studio a man who made some of that history, Dr. Frederick Cook. Dr. Cook, we thank you for joining us. Before we begin, let me just remind viewers of your significance and why we're so happy to be able to bring you to us live from the early part of our last century. You were, or are, a well-known American explorer as well as a medical doctor with multiple achievements. For one, you served on an Arctic expedition with Robert Peary back in 1891 and 1892. Then you made your own attempt at reaching the North Pole in 1908 with two Inuit companions. We look forward tonight to sharing some of history with you and discussing how knowledge of the past might inform the present. Thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to share my experience with whoever's there on the other side of those cameras. I'll get right to the point. We seem to be in a time here in the 21st century when everyone has a story, an individual reality, we might say, and it's become hard to ascertain the truth of things. Photos and videos can be doctored, and for a variety of reasons, people put their own spins on events. Simple things, even like the size of a crowd or who's responsible for an accomplishment or maybe a failure, like an economic collapse or a trade war or a response to a pandemic. Uh a uh, doctor? I, I am a doctor, actually, a surgeon, <clears throat> and well-versed in the prevention of scurvy. Yes. Uh, you've had some experience with this subject of truth rather famously more than a century ago, and we thought that hearing from you might bring new understanding both to what happened all those years ago and to our current situation. So let's begin. Please. Could you tell us a bit about your 1908 North Pole expedition? Others had attempted, but I was the first man to attain the North Pole, walking over the ice from Greenland. It was a tremendous achievement. I find it nearly unimaginable that you and your companions were in that incredibly hostile environment for 14 long months. I understand that your navigational records were lost, and so you've never been cl given clear credit for reaching the pole. You were challenged by Robert Peary, who made his own expedition the following year, and whose claim has also never been firmly established. Did I get that right? Yes, essentially. I would add that Mr. Peary is a scoundrel, and his efforts to destroy my reputation did a great deal of harm to me personally. I had to leave my instruments and records behind to be brought later by ship, 
but Mr. Peary would not allow them aboard his ship and they were never seen again. So I don't know, shall we stop there? I don't know. <laughs> well, no, uh, go a little bit farther. I go okay. a little bit farther, if you will. Okay. Certainly. All right. Why don't you tell me in your own words what happened in 1908? I know you've written a whole book about this, My Attainment of the Pole, which is still available in reprint editions, and I have to say it is a fascinating read, but we have limited time between commercial breaks. Can you give us a wiki summary of what you did that year? Uh, uh, a summary, certainly. My team started from Inuatak in Greenland on February 19th, 1908 and headed north, 500 miles from the pole as planned. Members of the supply team turned back and I began the dash with my two Eskimo companions and a number of dogs. That was on March 18th. I reached the North Pole as precisely as it could be figured with my instruments, the very best instruments, on April 21st. We nearly died of starvation on the return. It was a phenomenal feat conquering the pole, and I've never gotten the credit that I fully deserve. In fact, no one in history has ever been treated as badly as I have, Mr. Peary. Now, Robert Peary was a colleague and a competitor, and if he could be here with us, I believe he would tell us another story. That man malevolently assailed my character. He's guilty of perjury and forged charges. The press lined up with his dishonest movement by printing bribed, faked, and forged news items deliberately manufactured by my enemies. It was a widespread and relentless persecution from all of them. They attempted to steal the justly deserved honors of my achievements. Hmm, fake news. Yes, that is perhaps not invent an invention of our own times. I gather you were not a friend of journalism in your time. I wrote in my book, everyone should read it, that one of the remarkable things about modern journalism is that by persistent repetition, it can create as a fact in the public mind, a thing which is purely immaterial or untrue. This is what happened to me. Led by Mr. Peary, there was a great clambering after proof, absolute proof that I had indeed reached the pole. Every scientist know that figures are inadequate. And so I did not produce at the time such vague and obscure proofs as existed. Well, that's it. And I, and I do want you guys to read another excerpt because this is okay. such a, a wonderful um, a script and because it isn't too long, we can practically read the whole thing, but, <laughs> but we really also want to try and have a discussion. And I, I know, you know, the first thing that's sort of like coming to mind to me right now is just um, this, this national and really an international discussion about um, fake news and telling the truth and the fabrication of the truth that we have been really um, embroiled in as, as a country for, um, you know, four long years. And um, I, I'm really interested in the structure of this play and the sort of this time travel of, of the um, character of Cook you know, into the present day, you know, TV recording studio where he's being um, grilled by a very, you know, insightful, kind of astute, kind of contemporary character that, as you described, kind of a Rachel Maddow kind of character to tease out what the facts um, really are. Why did you, Nancy, pick um, this sort of um, 
white male explorer, you know, this, this kind of, um, you know, extreme example of, of kind of that, that westward um, notion of um, power, achievement, authority to, to begin to look at our, you know, this, this explorer, Fred Cook, to, to, as a lens through which to look at our contemporary um, yeah. political scene. Well, it, I mean, it was sort of an, a, a, just an accident that I came upon his book, and I, I had always known of him, um, and he's just, he's just such a great character. I mean, he really did have some, you know, tremendous achievements, both uh, at both poles. He was down in the South Pole. He actually rescued an expedition down there as a, as a doctor and um, kept people alive by going out and by going out and hunting and um, getting fresh meat so they didn't die of scurvy and so on. So, but, but this, um, it just seems, it just seems so contemporary, the issues like what we just read about, you know, he assailed the press for aligning with his, his enemy and, um, and, you know, telling, you know, a different story than what, what he wanted told. Um, and, um, and, you know, I mean, even from the title of his book is My Attainment of the Pole. I mean, he was a very narcissistic character. And, um, you know, I think you could probably say he was a, you know, pathological liar because he did make up, you know, these stories to, um, you know, build himself up and claim things. Um, and, you know, whether he actually... Well, he didn't, he couldn't, well, he probably convinced himself of um, the, the truth of what he was telling, although he, he, at some level, at some point, he had to know that they were not true. Um, so, yeah, these particular claims about the North Pole and about um, Den Mount Denali have really been uh, completely uh, uh, discounted by, by historians at this point. And so there's this story of Fred Cook, and then there's the story of, of our times and our, you know, particularly um, the challenges of finding out the truth. So it seems like you were really kind of using the play to explore this idea of, of that subtext. Talk oh, a little yeah. bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was having sort of having fun with that, trying to... Um, you know, have some parallels to the present day, but but I didn't I didn't want to didn't want to be didn't want it to be like a parody exactly, um, but just to have some resonance with um, the issues of the day and you know and you know some personalities of the day. Absolutely, um, we were talking about truth telling um, just in preparation for this discussion, and there's a point in the play where um, you you kind of brought it to light, Jen, um, about um, credibility, you know, and whether or not witnesses should be present or how much evidence is needed to find out the facts. Can we go to that little section for a moment? Um, and Jen, would you, you know what I'm talking about where she says, um, yeah, proof, there's proof, absolute proof or yeah. Mm 
uh, I'm trying to, oh, oh, here it is. Okay. I have it. It's on page five. Page, top of page five. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we read that bit? Uh, Jen, you want to start with the interviewer saying, and when you took your report? Sure. And when you took your report to the University of Copenhagen for their review, what was their verdict? Well, at the time, I did not submit my original records. I didn't send them my journal with the daily notes because I feared it would be lost or stolen. Those self-appointed experts decided that my tremendous success was not proven. That is, as you know, very different from being disproved, although my critics and the newspapers lied about that. I resent those kitchen explorers who know nothing of the hardships I've endured. For a year, I barely survived starvation. But I have tremendous physical fortitude and endurance. I am the strongest of men. I think we would certainly agree that when a claim is not absolutely proven, that's not the same as it being disproven. It just means that the evidence isn't compelling enough. For example, if a woman says she was raped, but no evidence was gathered at the time, she could very well be telling the truth, but the accused man walks away because sufficient evidence, as from the collection of DNA or enough collaboration from witnesses, is lacking. Uh, I wouldn't know about that. What people forget is that when I returned to civilization, I was greeted with mad cheers and hooting whistles, with bursting guns and blaring bands. I was led through streets filled with applauding men and singing children and arched with triumphal flowers. I wrote all about this in my book, in those beautiful words I memorized. People said that no one had ever received such an ovation. I attended dinners and receptions more than 260 days. Everybody loved me. Then came Mr. Peary's vicious attack. I am the most shamefully abused man in the history of exploration, maybe of all history. Throughout the entire world, lies were printed about me. Thank you both for reading that bit. It's just, well, I'm thinking about a lot of things, but one of them is really just this, this incredibly pompous, like white male and, and how, um, you know, he feels like his version of the story with no evidence, you know, um, for the benefit of others, you know, to, or to, to prove his credibility to others, that's sufficient for him to um, insist on his story. And, and that, that parallels, of course, um, quite similarly, you know, Trump's regime, but how much that that whole um, style of leadership relies upon a long-standing kind of Western doctrine of authority, first of all, to, to explore and to um, take and to, to own the story and to tell the story of the people whose land, you know, was, quote, discovered. And um, Jen, I'm just curious about the kind of um, dialogue that, that you and the actors have had, you know, just in this process of rehearsal and building these characters. Are, are, do you find that the actors are talking about these, these parallels and how are they, you know, what is that like just behind the scenes sort of processing the script in light of the Absolutely. Um, something that I wanted to talk about that I think is really important is that, especially during this, uh, this last tumultuous year, we've been examining, doing a lot of self-examination and 
one of the things that's extremely important to Pier One is community. It is a community theater in which we um, pride ourselves that everyone is welcome and we want to be open and inclusive to all members of our community. And so one of the things that's sort of spurred by, um, you know, the death of George Floyd and this huge conversation about cultural equity uh, is that we don't even know necessarily the barriers that are preventing people from feeling welcome in the community that we present um, to Homer and um, across the Bay and the rest of the Kenai Peninsula and who feels welcome in our in our presence. So uh, this play is really taking a look at this kind of uh, white man narrative that is woven the story of Alaska history and been shared um, around the world and so and 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 woven itself into our just general narrative. So uh, Mara and Mike and I have been talking about that a lot that the um, there are other characters in this story um, these two Inuit companions of um, of cooks um, and the question of sort of how do how do we tell that story and why are we hearing from Cook and from this interviewer instead of um, from these Inuit companions and um, to try to get to the heart of it and I think uh, it is important for us to examine it from the perspective of the white narrative so that we can open ourselves up to other people's perspectives. Um, I'm not sure I'm articulating that exactly the way I want to, but. Um, no, no, I mean, I think that that really makes sense because this, this is not, the point is, this is not really the story of the people in, you know, um, at the pole. This is this, this is a story of, of um, Cook's, you know, pathological lying personality. It's a story of how he, of how other stories might be told and other methods of um, kind of like leadership and authorship, you know, work in the telling of, of um, the Western, you know, the American story, if you will. I mean, it's a story, it's a story of conquest about, mm -hmm. you know, getting to the top of the mountain or getting to the top of the globe being the first one to do that. And of course the indigenous people had no reason to do either of those. I mean, no, you know, no one, you know, there was no purpose in going to the North Pole. It was, you know, it was all ice up there. There were, there were you know, it was nothing to eat or, or, you know, you wouldn't go there. There was no reason. Just as you wouldn't go to the top of a, a mountain just to claim it. Um, so there is that, um, juxtaposition and and yeah and so we do go into that a little bit too later in the play where he talks where she asks him about his companions and and he expresses the attitudes of the day towards indigenous people and um yeah. Asia, don't forget that we have well, i do have um a, a few photos uh to show at some point too. yeah Let, well let's look at those if you would like to i don't want to miss the opportunity to to pull those out and okay. we can continue the conversation while we're looking at them. Okay, it's just three photos. So let me uh, get there. Mm -hmm. um, oh, 
you know, and there, yeah, great. So I don't, are you seeing my desktop now? Yeah. Okay, good. There's good old Fred Cook um, wearing his Arctic clothing. Um, and uh, I, I assume this is a studio shot because he looks very, um, you know, kind of handsome. His hair and his beard is nice. He's not all windburned and frostbitten. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, and then, then the next photo, this is, this is his um, North Pole uh, photo that he claimed was uh, taken at the North Pole when he got there and used his instruments to establish that that's where he was. And put the good old American flag to claim it. And um, and then this is his uh, summit shot from uh, what was then Mount McKinley, now Denali, um, and uh, subsequent mountaineers and others um, have located this. Uh, it's on a ridge next to Ruth Glacier, uh, and it, it's now called uh, Fake Peak. Uh, uh, and they were able in. Um, Kind of enhancing it to see a little, you know, a little bit. You could see kind of beyond the edges where they could line it up with, um, uh, you know, other locations. So they it, they are very sure that they've identified this particular spot. And these were the two pieces of evidence that Cook offered of his achievement. Of these two different achievements, yeah, yeah Denali was right. a couple of years, uh, two right, years right, before his North Pole. Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. yeah, I really love the structure of this play, Nancy, because you've got these. Um, you begin with this this huge claim, the attainment of the pole, and we see the photograph of that, um, and then, uh, which is which is not quite verifiable. Uh, we, we don't know that he didn't make it to the pole necessarily. We think he didn't <laughs> because he's not presenting compelling evidence. But, um, and then others, of course, have made the attempt after him and um, sort of disproven proven him, right? But then this next piece, this fake peak, is uh, verifiably untrue. We can as you, you the, the next thing you examine is that it's verif this verifiably untrue thing that he's at, he is not at the summit. <laughs> we know where it is, we can tell where it is in photographs, we can verify that he is making a false claim. Um, and then later, we come a little bit further on into his history and we discover that he, uh, you know, was in fact convicted of um, uh, what was his crime. <laughs> um, this deception um yeah with the money i think with money yeah um, taking money and yeah so um and so this i really love this sort of like s slow burn that you've got going on in the structure of the play where he we we take this sort of big idea that he's he is maybe or maybe hasn't 
um, attain the poll. And then we sort of just follow the evidence through the play and sort of understand his, that we understand his character better and that he is sort of um, whatever his, these wild claims are that he's making, he is just um, using bravado to um, to attempt to make them true in the public public eye, um, and I just um, I just love the way you've kind of revealed that to us through the script. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, I think in 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 the beginning, um, he he does he could seem like kind of a heroic character, and then I sort of tried to build the the questioning by the interviewer to to get to that. And yeah, and at the very end, he, I mean, he did, he did go to prison for um, uh, whatever he did with uh, fooling people with, with money, or, you know, I don't know, stealing money, basically. <laughs> Just such a fascinating character. Could we read one more little piece, the two of you, um, Nancy as Cook and, and Jen again as the interviewer on page four, where we get kind of a look at how he can see how he perceives the indigenous people. This is um, where he says, um, you know, we had the warmest clothing prepared for us. Close to the top of page four. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that the interviewer says, I assume you addressed in the Inuit way. Can you describe uh, clothing? I assume you dressed in the Inuit way, the same as your companions. I'm, 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 uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm not finding it. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh yeah, there we are. Okay. Yes, we had the warmest clothing prepared for us in, in Awatok. We had coats of blue fox and sealskin, birdskin shirts, woolen shirts, Bearskin pants, sealskin boots, hareskin stockings. We wore bands of foxtails around our waists and knees. We had, of course, multiple pairs of sealskin mittens and fur mittens. On the march, we sometimes grew quite warm. I realize that we are in a different age now, but I'm curious about your relationship with the two men you chose to accompany you. Did you not say in your book that they worked without pay? And did you call them boreal pygmies with golden skins, muscles of steel, and hearts as finely human as those of the highest order of man? I give them every credit. I could not have made the conquest without them. They were happy to receive a gun and a knife each. The critics, again, said that these two men later testified that the party on the ice was out of sight of land for only a couple of days. What do you say to that? Well, it is it is true that I had encouraged the delusions of my Eskimos that the mirages and low-lying clouds we saw each day were signs of land. With this innocent deception, I prevented the panic that seizes every Arctic savage when he finds himself on the ice out of sight of land. I explained all this in my book. Yes, I recall that. Savage, of course, is not a word we use anymore to refer to indigenous peoples. We apologize to viewers if they're offended by the historical use. Dr. Cook, there is also the matter of the maps the men drew later on. The routes they drew were found to be almost identical to that in a novel by Jules Verne. Can you comment on that? Mr. Peary knows as well as I do that an Eskimo on the ice out of sight of land has no sense of location. Those drawings are useless. 
the Jules Verne similarity was just a coincidence? I cannot say oh, what, was, what was in the mind of Mr. Verne. I never met the man. <laughs> well, I think, why don't we stop here? I mean, I, okay. I could, I definitely want I, to hear the whole thing, but I, that kind <laughs> of serves the point, you know, it's like, I'm thinking about how when first he describes his clothing, I'm thinking about kind of like that American mythology of, um, you know, westward expansion and survival, like Daniel Boone, you know, that's a narrative that we, we know, you know, from childhood. But the way that we were taught history was always to kind of aggrandize this um, idea of, um, of exploration and ownership and conquest. And it's really, it really goes back in, in ways that I hope are more, more talked about, you know, to like the papal bull of, you know, of the 1500s when the Spanish crown basically authorized and funded a, quite a bit of expansions um, into the West of their, of their crown, of their authority, you know, paid for these expeditions. And it's the expedition mentality is really rooted in, um, you know, the Eurocentric view and what basically um, created what we now call America. And I, I just, I want to sort of turn toward the topic of like how we teach and how we tell the story a little bit and the role that writers and, you know, community organizations play in telling that story and, and really to, to thank you both for giving Homer um, an opportunity to start right into the discussion with this idea of exploring a lie. Because, you know, that I think really is the bravest and um, most in the place of greatest integrity to look at how, we're, how we teach Western history is like, on one hand, there's the lie and what motivates that? What kind of arrogance motivates that? But what was the arrogance behind that? Which, um, you know, it wasn't lies. It was just um, greed and a lot of other political and, and um, religious agendas, you know? And, and certainly too, at this time, you know, we've got, participants and listeners who I'm sure have a lot of thoughts and questions. And if, if anybody wants to jump in and share um, an observation or ask a question of, of Nancy, the playwright and, and Jen, the director and executive director of Pure One, this is a great time to do it. How should we tell, you know, I'm just really thinking about how should we tell the story of how, why we're here and and why we live here as we do in this place that's now called Alaska by white people. Moment of silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'll just add, you know, the commonplace that um, history is, is, is told by the winners of you know of wars and so on and um, you know you, you know the other voices are not are not with us so we're left to um, try to imagine them and um, of course the the stories of say the people who the indigenous people who traveled with um, Frederick Cook 
we'll, you know, we'll never know what their experience was. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to even imagine it. And then if, of course, if we do imagine it, then we're kind of stepping on, um, you know, cultural appropriation by <laughs> trying to put ourselves in the place of someone that we don't really, we're not really capable of knowing what it was like to be that person in that, in that time. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a handicap. And I guess I think the you know, the best we can do is, um, just try to, well, try to try to promote, you know, as many voices as we can, you know, in contemporary writing and playwriting and performances and in all the art forms, um, to sort of counter what the the history that we can't really influence very much. Yeah, one of the things that I really noticed about just this passage that we just read is how much Cook not only um, uh, treats uh, his companions as savages, public perception is, I mean, this description, these boreal um, pygmies pigmy with hearts almost home, almost like a real man or whatever, you know, he's just terrible about it. And it's, and, and I'm sure that his way of describing those people was not uh that was pretty accepted so he's undermining their veracity by making them seem to be lesser beings mm -hmm. and then um and sort of so, so bolstering up his claim of this this quest that he's this conquest by undermining them completely and um when it, it's when he's used their technology to get him there and he's used their experience and he's used them in this in this way to get where, what he wanted and then he completely undermines their um their standing in the public eye and i uh, it's just terrible and it's um and I'm certain he's not the only one, you know, it's, that's clear throughout history that he's not the only one and that, that it was very easy probably for him to do that initially. And it was only, uh, you know, Peary and others, his sort of scientific peers or whatever, who could, whose claims were then believed and investigated. Um, not so much um, his companions. Anyway, that's just, yeah. Yeah, and toward, towards the end of the play, he go he kind of goes on a rant about P Peary again and all the terrible things that Peary did, um, which are which are apparently true. I mean, he he treated um, you know the indigenous people um, very very poorly as well. He he kept um, supplies from them. He didn't. He apparently fathered children they didn't take care of <laughs> there in the Arctic. Um, and Perry's the one who um, actually, brought, uh, I, I could almost say kidnapped, but he, he, he brought um, a, a number of um, Northern people to New York. Um, was it New York or London? I think it was New York, um, where they all died, um, except for one. Um, but they were sort of kept like, I mean, they were sort of like, you know, zoo animals or something. They were, they were specimens to be looked at. Um, and they all, of course, they all caught diseases that they had no immunity to. And um, 
mostly mostly died. So and that you I mean that that was that time period, and you know it wasn't all that long ago. No, um, no, it's incredibly recent. I mean, when yeah. we talk about when we talk about Alaska, especially, we're really just talking about a few hundred years. Um, but even this, you know, the papal bull, you know, that, that I spoke of is, that's just a couple hundred years more than that. So it's a very short blip in, yeah. in the story of the world. You made an interesting point that history um, is told and, and remembered by the winners. And of course, that happens in the process of making texts, of taking things down, which become the stories. And then those stories, you know, um, get retold and rewritten and, and taught and so forth. Um, but of course, when speaking about cultures that um, did not historically have written traditions and just oral traditions, it makes me think about the importance of storytelling, of kind of like resurrecting traditions of storytelling, not of course simply or only supporting that within um, certain communities and in, like indigenous communities, but within all communities to to sort of value that element of taking things apart, of seeing the story in terms of its artifice or its 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 fiction, and the idea that all story writing has at its element this power in the writer, you know, in the actor and in the producer and all, all these layers, so that we can see where the construction happens, you know, and like if if for example, um as part of this, there could be like this talk back or this dialogue, you know, um, I don't know if that can be done on air. I know that sometimes happens with plays in our community where we can just um, have a chance to lift up other voices. There was that reference, Jen, you made to, to like, um, what do people think? How do they react? Who, who other stories are here that we could listen to um, and share? It seems like a very important um, opportunity, just orally, just you know, on the spot, more more spontaneously, more informally, um, to validate that way of sharing, that way of of telling. Yeah. Even as we go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say one of the things I and I was sharing this with Nancy and Mike and Mora when we met um, last night uh, uh, that. One of the things I love about making theater is we've taken, we take this written document and then we turn it into an oral thing and yeah. we go line by line and we talk about the intention and the meaning behind things and the way that it's, um, what the message it's supposed to bring out. And then, and then we bring it to life to share it orally to our community. And so there's a huge process in the, um, I mean, every director is different in how they develop a play. But for me, it's very much about the text. And so taking, taking that text and bringing it to life and figuring out all the motivations behind it, and then being able to share it with the community. And of course, the actors get that more in-depth conversation because we live with it for Oh, quite some time to bring it to its place that we're going to share it with the community. But then it does go out orally and there is a huge, it's hugely important to hear it on the radio where it can go into everyone's home. And then 
or, you know, come together, gather together and have a shared oral experience in the theater together, um, which we are desperately missing at this moment. Um, but it is funny that you say like the, the mm -hmm. oral tradition of it, you know, we don't have to start with a habit having been written down. We can start, we could develop it in a different way and just pass right. on those stories orally without that um, writing process. And um, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and what, are, well, and what are the possibilities for like um, lingering after the radio production to have like an open space for some sort of dialogue, you know, on air, not terribly different from this, but even more, um, you know, if it's possible to inviting and maybe even facilitated, because I mean, invariably, there's some some really negative and sweeping kind of claims about indigenous people, for example, that are made by Cook, you know, when he talks about savages and so forth and it's really important to acknowledge well right in our community our community is made of different you know people of, of various backgrounds and how does it feel to hear that and and just giving just giving some room i love that you say that's when the story comes to life when it's live and how could we extend or foster the life of um space and support and tolerance and justice where we hear you know and we include and just kind of sustain this conversation into the community i hope something like that might be able to happen with the kbbi project we did something kind of like that with alaska alaska maybe you remember at the, at the mariner theater where afterward we had some facilitators including the the writer himself and and you nancy and and jen are I think really insightful and sensitive and could just hold a space, you know, with others perhaps to just talk back. Just a thought. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I think um I think Rika has Rika, did you have something you wanted well, to say? There were two points that I wanted to talk about that oh. there's a lecture that I heard on a podcast, but the idea that it's sort of diverse, but that all of our stories are personal stories when we're gone that story dies with you and every story then comes through somebody else who knew you and it's their story or their interpretation of you that all stories that we hear from others about somebody is their own story because they know one slice of you or one experience so really all these stories are as ephemeral as a lifetime and it's interesting in that way but it's interesting for some reason i get this mailing and it's a far right mailing imprints from the hinsdale college and this guy is you know the the 1619 project started by the new york times so they're fighting that and trump has his 1776 commission thing and it's so interesting and here it says the 1619 project promotes teaching that slavery not freedom is the defining fact of american history trump's 1776 commission aims to restore truth and honesty to the teaching of american history it's an initiative we've got to work on tirelessly and so that's an oral other 
thing of disseminating that through textbooks. And it's this fight of who gets to tell the story. And of course it, it's, and that whole thing about truth. I mean, what is truth? And it, it yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting topic. And Nancy, I didn't know that you were doing this, wrote this play. I'm utterly fascinated. It's an incredible topic and incredibly relevant in this time about histories yeah. and truth and ah, yeah. colonialism um, and yeah. yeah. Well, if we, if we live long enough, it'll be interesting to see how this period in our <gasps> lives gets interpreted, you know, 50 years from now, say, um, or even 20 years from now, since oh everything- and even now, I mean, there'll be different interpretations because even now what happened on January 6th, you listen to, you know, one side or the other, and it's a completely different narrative. We're taking back our country versus we're defending democracy. I mean, and both sides are defending democracy and taking back their country. <laughs> both sides. Right. They're both defending the Constitution. And Oh my gosh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. 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 What an interesting time we, we live in. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I want to thank you both so much for, you know, all of you for joining this conversation, but especially to Nancy and, and Jen for, um, for, for bringing Homer right into, um, you know, this conversation and giving our, our community an opportunity to process what is fact and fiction and the way the sort of conquest of Alaska is told. Thank you so much for joining me today and for the work that you do. No, thank, thank you. And yeah, everybody stay tuned for uh, KBBI and sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we certainly, we certainly will. Okay. Yeah.